This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Bill Even, CEO of the National Pork Board. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is working toward a global subsidy ceasefire. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Bill Even next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. And they know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. Their plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy, and you can learn more at sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Despite a setback from a national pig virus five short years ago, Bill Even, CEO of the National Pork Board, says pig farmers have increased production and the industry has added processing capacity to better satisfy domestic and global consumer demand for pork. Even says there's little doubt that maintaining domestic herd health and growing global markets are top-of-mind issues for the swine industry today. There's no doubt if you're out and talk to producers or, or the packing industry or the exporters, the uncertainty that's out there right now dealing with the trade situation and tariffs really have caused a bit of pause or concern as to where we're all going to land in this. You know, there's been a lot of capital invested both at the farm level uh, in producing pigs, but a lot of capital invested in the packing level in order to process these pigs and get them ready for shipment, and a lot of capital invested in the supply chains and moving chilled pork specifically into the uh, Asia-Pacific region. So you know, there's a lot of captive investment here now that's um, anxiously waiting to see USMCA get ratified or a Japan free trade agreement get put into place and the like. So with regard to the Japanese situation, what could that mean for U.S. pork, and, and what would it mean if you could actually get the door open to China and get rid of that 60-plus percent tariff? Well, I'll start with Japan first. And so the United States uh, had spent eight years working with Japan and the other nations in the Trans-Pacific Partnership designed to really uh, give U.S. Um, pork exporters uh, access to the Japanese market at, at new levels and with lower tariffs. And as you know, um, the current administration uh, withdrew us from the, the TPP. Uh, the remaining countries then um, went forward without us uh, with a new agreement. And so um, already starting in April of this year, the United States has started to fall behind uh, from a tariff standpoint into Japan. And so the U.S. Trade Representative's Office has been working uh, diligently with the Japanese government on new trade negotiations instead of a multilateral, you know, multination plan going at a bilateral approach with, uh, with Japan. There, um, there's a lot of, I would say, riding on the Japanese um, negotiations, and here's why. Uh, Japan um, is in our top five in volume, but it is uh, frequently number one in value. The Japanese consumer really values the high-end muscle cuts we produce here in the United States, and they're willing to pay premium prices for it. So if you think about the value of the pig, the ability to sell uh, those cuts for really good margins internationally really helps the overall value of the hog and then profitability in the industry. The second part of your question, Jeff, was uh, really around China. 
And uh, it appears that uh, we might be in for the long haul uh, with China and a lot of geopolitical issues with agriculture and pork and, you know, pork and soybeans in particular, uh, you know, have been feeling the brunt of being the pawns in that game since last spring. There uh, is an incredible opportunity with uh, African swine fever ravaging Southeast Asia. There's a protein hole that the U.S. stands ready to fill. So we've got uh, the greatest of hope and expectations with our government uh, continuing to work with China to resolve some of the bigger, I would say, geopolitical issues so we can get back to uh, conducting business of uh, moving ag products. So it's not the business of the pork board to be talking about policy, but we can identify uh, issues that are facing you and, frankly, this globe. African swine fever has been around for some time but has reared its head mightily over the past 12 months. Aside from China, just how far has this disease spread? African swine fever, as you would expect, uh, came out of Africa uh, years ago, uh, started to get a little bit into Eastern Europe, then spread to Russia, and uh, unfortunately uh, landed in China officially a year ago. China's home to half the hogs in the world. And conservative estimates uh, believe that China may be losing anywhere from a third to maybe 50% of their swine herd. You run the math on that globally, and we could be looking at a quarter of all the pigs in the world being out of existence here as we stand here today in August of 2019. It spread into Vietnam. It spread into Laos. We have indications it's in North Korea. These are pork-consuming countries that pork is part of their diet. And when you think about the long-range global impact to protein demand as well as protein supply and flow, this is unprecedented in the in the history of the world. And so this is this is the biggest event in in our generation, and how the rest of the world responds in both prevention and preparedness, as well as the ability to sell product into these markets, is going to mean a lot for the I would say the you know, the calorie component and the nutritional component of the diet in, in many of these countries. We don't have it in the U.S., knock on wood. We have the pork that we're ready, willing, and able to sell internationally, and that's why these two things come together, the trade tariff issues and negotiations coupled with the pressing demand for many of these countries to actually have pork to eat. So from a from a perspective or volume standpoint, what does a fourth or half of China's pig population mean in terms of U.S. production? And in a related question, if we can't get access to the Chinese market, what about the other countries that surround them? So the United States produced just shy of 125 million head of market hogs in 2018. We're on scale to be a bit above that, about 3% higher this year. And that's more, you know, Chinese have lost more pigs than we've produced in the entire United States in a given year. So that gives you some sense of the scale of what we're talking about here and the protein hole that's developing globally. If we can't gain access to the Chinese market because of political reasons, do we have enough supply that we could take care of those surrounding countries, assuming that they'd be willing to buy our product? So I think one way that we're looking at it uh, as U.S. pork industry is that we're we're truly in a global market, and so if um, even though we may not be supplying China due to tariffs and trade tensions, if China is uh, securing pork from other places around the world, that means that somebody somewhere has got the hole just moves around. There's somebody somewhere that has another hole to fill. 
I think the issue that the U.S. pork industry is looking at is um, how do you readjust to uh, different markets? How do you set up new logistics and supply chains in order to move pork maybe into an area of the world that the, the Chinese are now are uh, buying from? So in some ways, this is a closed system, but it's very uh, expensive and takes time to do a reset on that. The one advantage the United States has is the ability to send chilled pork into the Pacific Rim versus frozen pork. And in many of these countries, uh, fresh pork is the preferred source of meat. You know, there's a lot of wet markets where uh, animals are harvested and then sold in the same day. So our ability to send uh, chilled pork and not frozen pork is a real competitive advantage. If you need to shift and start thinking other places in the world where you're going to move product to, you've got to really think about how do you ship it there and maintain food safety. And sometimes that may mean uh, freezing it. So this is a a very complex, nuanced uh, issue. However, the ability to access as many markets as possible with as low a tariffs as possible is in the best interests of the U.S. producer. What have pork producers, what has the industry been doing here in the U.S. to protect itself? So prevention has been high on the radar of the U.S. pork industry ever since the news broke a year ago of ASF and now in China. And so we've been working with the National Pork Producers Council, the American Association of Swine Veterinarians, the Swine Health Information Center, the North American Meat Institute, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and others, and on and on around prevention, but simultaneously we're working on preparedness. So God forbid that we have a foreign animal disease like this break in the United States. How do we deal with it initially, and then how do we get back to normal business operating conditions as soon as possible? There's a few different parts to that. Um, Certainly the government has the authority and the jurisdiction around inspections at our ports and borders. USDA has stepped up to the plate, uh, put more beagles at points of inspection, work closely with Customs and Borders Protection around airplane travel or uh, cruise ships, as well as uh, you know the vast uh, containers that move food back and forth across the ocean. On the preparedness side, there's been a lot of work done with the industry, the state veterinarians, state pork associations, and producers to really understand If you have to stop moving pigs for a minimum of three days, 72 hours, what does that mean to you? You've got sows that are farrowing. You've got little piglets that need to be cared for. You've got pigs that need to move from nursery to finishing. You've got pigs that need to move from finishing to the packing plants. You've got meat that needs to move from the packing plant out to distributors and and wholesalers and exporters. We run a just-in-time logistics system that is the most efficient in the world. And so any disruption in that over, you know, over a day or two really starts to have domino effects. And the checkoff has been working diligently to understand what those effects are and how do we manage them in the best way possible in a crisis. I was taken back at a recent congressional hearing where it was revealed the U.S. had several hundred job vacancies to protect our borders. Is that a concern? It sure is, and that's why it's drawn the attention of the the folks in Congress. Um, It's really clear that uh, the the CBP Custom and Border uh, Patrol and these uh, and, the, and their partners at the USDA were often uh, shorthanded in many of these critical points where uh, global trade flows happen and global people flows happen. 
So I think it's uh, very encouraging to see and hear that, A, it's on the radar, and B, that folks are talking about it. Because as you, you shore that up as part of our first line of defense against uh, inadvertently importing a foreign animal disease, those, uh, those investments will pay um, off extremely large dividends to U.S. agriculture in the long run. Let's shift then out to the U.S. consumer. As the tastes and the demands of the consumer base continues to evolve, what are you noting about their wants, and how is the industry responding? And I'm really guessing that it's more than having a catchy slogan like pork the other white meat. The spot on there, uh, the, the consumers are becoming uh, more and more fragmented. As they say, if you've met one millennial, you've met one millennial. You know, you don't necessarily <laughs> have identified the entire, you know, the entire sector. So we live in a we live in a, a great time now. You've got you know the the baby boomer and silent generation out there that were real solid mainstays of the pork industry. I'm a Gen Xer. Um, we've got the millennials, and now my my daughter that's a Gen Z and in, in her first year of college at Iowa State. So we're responsible for understanding these consumers um, through that lens. But I think interestingly. People's need states change throughout the week, and I'll use my home as an example. Maybe on a Monday, my wife might be gone, and my daughter might be gone, and so I'm just looking around the fridge trying to find something to warm up in a microwave. What do I have there for pork that's going to you know, fit me? Tuesday, it might be my wife and I and say, okay, what are we going to throw on the grill? What type of pork cut do we want to try, and, and how are we going to put together a meal around that? On Wednesday, our daughter might be around, and then suddenly now you're feeding three people with different needs. And on Friday, she shows up with six of her, you know, college friends, all age 19. Now you're cooking for, you know, a Gen Z crew. How does pork fit into that meal? And then on Saturday, we may have a, a barbecue in the backyard where you've got a whole bunch of people in a variety of ages, and now we're trying to feed uh, more of an army. So throughout the week, the pork industry needs to have innovative products that fit the needs in both package size and quality and, uh, I'd say, convenience to fit uh, Bill Even and his family throughout the course of a week. So we're not monolithic, and I think that's been a a big message we've been trying to push to the pork industry uh, in particular is you don't necessarily have to think about somebody as, well, they're they're a baby boomer, they're going to eat this, or they're a millennial, they're going to snack on this. The reality is your need states change throughout the week, and you need to have a product line that meets all of those so that you've got pork available and, and top of mind. Bill, what's your response to the consumer that is now being lured by plant-based meat substitutes or even the pending cell-based protein sources. Those are real, but so is pork. Absolutely. So pork is is pretty proud of our ingredient list. Uh, you look at it, and it's one word. You know, it's pork, P-O-R-K. It's meat, M-E-A-T. Pretty straightforward. Uh, we're the original protein. Uh, we're natural. We're simple. We're no or minimally processed product. And like anything else, um, we are pro-innovation and pro-choice. We recognize that there are going to be new entrants in the market. Protein is in high demand. Meat is in high demand and growing globally. As people's incomes rise and there are more people and they get access to the nutrients-dense, rich um, protein that comes from pork, 
you you tend to have um, you know better outcomes, better lifespans, and everything else. So it's no surprise you're going to attract competitors. But I would just ask people to do their homework and uh, take a look at labels. We're pretty proud of who we are, and that's a pretty simple and straightforward product that is the number one globally consumed protein in the world. Over 40% of uh, meat protein in the world comes from pork, and that beats every everything else hands down. Sustainability is a word that has been growing in headlines and now even in political speeches. So the We Care message from the Pork Board, who are you speaking to and what's your message about sustainability and the product that you provide and the environment that you produce it in? We're very proud of our We Care sustainability principles. In fact, pork is no stranger to this game. We developed them over 11 years ago. Many other industries and platforms are just thinking now about uh, what do they stand for. So the six principles of, of the pork industry revolve around our obligation to people, pigs, and the planet. And we have polled farmers we have polled um, packing industry, we've polled the grocery industry and the restaurant industry, as well as consumers and NGOs. Everywhere we go when we talk about We Care, it resonates well, and it's it's very positive. Uh, I'd say it's a very positive platform for us to advance continuous improvement. So stay tuned for more from the Pork Checkoff on that space. We are, we're going to be investing heavily as we go forward into 2020 to tell our sustainability story with facts, with data, and with the face of the producer out front. So as you mentioned, pork, the leading protein in the world, what is pork 2040? We export 27% of U.S. pork today, and the balance of it is consumed domestically here in the United States. As we see our growth potential globally, to be um, at a greater pace than our, our growth domestically, international exports continue to become bigger and bigger. Well, just like the U.S. consumer is changing, our global consumer is changing as well. And Port 2040 is our research platform that's doing qualitative and quantitative cultural understanding of major pork export markets both today and in the future. Uh, you can't you can't manage it if you're not measuring it. And so our job with Pork 2040 is to, for the first time, establish that global benchmark on where we want to try to open new markets and then how do we market to the people that live there. Bill, it seems that checkoff programs have been drawing more scrutiny. And obviously the Pork Checkoff has proven itself as a reliable investment for producers in the country. But how do you see the Pork Checkoff involving and how can it benefit producer, industry, and consumer? So the pork checkoff is run by a 15-member farmer board of directors, and so it's it's governed by the people that own the pigs and that are paying the checkoff. We're very proud of that. From there, our board has really taken a look at how the world is changing and has said, you know, the way that the pork checkoff was built and designed in 1985 uh, probably doesn't fit the needs of the industry today. And so our board of directors has made some very bold moves to overhaul the pork checkoff and make sure that we are still relevant farm to fork. We've got a lot of the basic fundamentals built inside of our organization. We have about a staff of 80 and an annual budget of around $70 million. 
And it's critically important that we leverage that budget and those human resources, whether you're talking to a producer, whether you're talking to a packer, a processor, a grocery store, or a restaurant, or a consumer, we need to be plugged in with those folks in an, in a very timely fashion. And our board is very committed to ensuring that the checkoff dollars are continuing to be spent well. Our independent third-party uh, economic analysis uh, shows that for every dollar that's invested in the checkoff, the producers receive $25 in return. That's one of the highest uh, ROIs of any of the 22 federal checkoff programs. Uh, that doesn't happen by accident, and we're looking to make it even better. Bill, even we want to thank you so much for taking time to spend with us here on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you get the last word today. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, thanks for your time, and I would just say this. The U.S. pork producers are doubling down on their commitment to uh, sustainability, transparency, and showing the rest of the world how proud we are to be raising pork. So whether you're a U.S. consumer that's looking to uh, enjoy pork regularly in your diet or you're an international consumer that's wondering how you get more of U.S. pork, our job is to do the research, promotion, and education to back all that up and be proud of who we are. Our thanks to Bill Even, CEO of the National Pork Board, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is working toward a global subsidy ceasefire. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.